Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, next week marks 10 years since Guiding Light went off the air, and it's so crazy to think that it's been that long. I mean, so, like, I wasn't someone who really watched the show before I started working here in 1990, but I certainly became a big fan once I did. Um... I know you know this, but it was actually the first soap set I ever visited. And a shout out to our former co-worker, Donna Hoke, who covered the show then. And she like let me tag along with her on set visits to learn how to do them and conduct interviews with actors. Um, but I mean, really, what a storied history this soap had. You know, it began on the radio in 1937, which is like inconceivable. <laughs> and it moved to television in 1952 and lasted until 2009. Um, it's totally insane. I mean, I know people who's like I know people who still call it the guiding light, uh, which was its name before they dropped the the in 1975. And you know, I have so many great digest memories associated with this show. Guiding Light was actually the first soap that I ever visited too. Uh, I was an intern at Soap Opera Weekly at the time I, when I was in college, and uh, Mark McGarry. Uh, a former colleague, let me come with him. He was doing a story about Matt and Vanessa's reunion after she had faked her death and they'd been separated for like a year. And he like, the community like built a house to bring her back. Anyway, I was totally beside myself because although Guiding Light was not the first soap that I watched by any means, once I started watching it, it really did become the first show that I kind of loved overall as opposed to watching because there was a couple on it that I really liked or an actor on it that I really liked. So I really started watching it just to try to catch a few weeks of Kim Zimmer as Reva before she left the show in 1990 when she drove off the bridge because mm -hmm. um, I had read in Digest that she had quit the show and I kind of wanted to like catch her while I could. And what ended up happening is that I got totally sucked into the story of her quote unquote widower Josh reeling from her, her demise and the relationship he formed with the, his kid's nanny, Harley. As you know, I was totally obsessed with them. Um... But I have to tell a quick funny story about something that happened that day that I was at the set. Uh, at the end of the day, Mark and I got on the elevator and he was sort of recapping his interview with Maeve Kincaid, who played Vanessa, telling me how the Matt and Vanessa reunion was going to unfold. And when he got to the critical point where Matt sees Vanessa for the first time alive, the elevator doors opened and Maeve walked onto our car and Mark told her, oh, I was just telling Mara about how uh, when Matt sees you, you say, and I wish I could remember what the line was. I don't. But what I do remember is that Maeve said it and she didn't just say it. She like performed it for me. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know that I had had a more exciting <laughs> moment in my life to that point in my life. That's amazing. Um, but Guiding Light, to your larger point, it's such an important and historic show in the soap landscape on so many different fronts, not the least of which is it being the only soap to survive the transition of serials, you know, from radio to television. Totally. And that's amazing to think about, you know, and really the heady daytime legacy attached to it. I mean, this was uh, created by Erna Phillips Soap, who, of course, went on to do some of our other beloved faves, like As World Turns and Another World. And, you know, Ted Corday, who then went on to create Days of Our Lives, which is now run by his son, Ken. 
uh, you know, was a producer on the show then. And, I mean, it was an early career credit for so many stars also. I mean, James Earl Jones, Cicely Tyson. You could play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, yes. you know, with this. <laughs> James Lipton, Allison Janney. And then, you know, later on you had Ian Ziering, who became the first Where Are They Now that I ever did here. And, I mean, even Hayden Panettiere. Like, the list goes on. Over the years, it was also the creative home for so many legendary soap writers, from Agnes Nixon, who would go on to create All My Children and One Life to Live, uh, to Bridget and Jerome Dobson, who went to create, uh, went on to create Santa Barbara, excuse me. Douglas Marland came to Guiding Light, fresh from introducing Luke and Bobby to General Hospital. And James Riley was a head writer before his Devil Possession storyline at Days of Our Lives and Creating Passions. It was the first show to hit 50 years on the air. And at the time it went off the air in 2009, it held the record for the longest continuing program in broadcast history, eclipsing even Meet the Press. Like, that's wild. Totally. And I was really into the James Riley years. You know, he did the Springfield Blackout, which kicked off the Blake and Ross romance, which I loved. I remember I was invited to the 55th anniversary party, which was huge. And I was super thrilled to see Cherry Verdorn and Cherry Springfield, who was playing Blake, you know, another actress who went on to find lots of primetime success after Springfield. I was a big Harley and Mallet fan. I was into Nick and Mindy. I mean, it was a great time for me to start watching the show because I was so sucked in. That was truly a glorious time for the show, I have to agree. Like, uh, Harley and Mallet were so awesome, and Ross and Blake were such a surprise hot couple. And Frank and Alini, who was played by Melina Canicarides, worked so well, too. And uh, Nick and Mindy were popping, as you mentioned. Like, it's almost mind-boggling to think about how many successful new pairings that show had all at the same time. When nowadays, I feel like if a show has, like, one new couple <laughs> taking off, it should, like, really kind of count its lucky stars. That's sad. Um, it's it's sad, but not untrue. Um, but I have to say that I really struggled, like, later in the decade when the show started maybe having, like, a belated reaction to the success that Days had with the Devil Possession stuff. And um, that more, like, out, out, uh, out there storytelling and mm -hmm. began adopting a similar tone. I'm referring to, like, Reva being cloned in oh, 1998 yeah. as a, as a GLP purist, I was not amused. Uh, totally agree. I mean, I can skip the Dolly years for sure. <laughs> um, you know, last week we spoke to Vincent Erzari about his time as Lou Jack and Nick. And of course, Beverly McKinsey was just masterful in the role of Alexandra. But, you know, there was also the wildly popular Four Musketeers, as they were called, Rick, Mindy, Beth, and Philip. You know, this was a great example of the show skewing younger and finding, like, great success mm -hmm. with it. You know, you had the offspring of major Springfield clans, the Bowers, the Spaldings, the Lewises. You had Beth, Lillian's daughter. You know, they really found their generation next, and their stories played out for years to come. Um, so our guest today is Michael O'Leary, who played Rick Bauer from 1983 and then on and off until the show's end in 2009. So let's get him on the phone to talk about it. Hi, Michael. Hello. Is this Rick Bauer? Dr. Rick <laughs> Bauer. Let's start this thing off right, damn it. Well, you are on with Mara, and I have Stephanie Sloan here with me. Hi, Michael. Oh, hey, Steph. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my God. It's been a long time, certainly for you and me. Well, we are so excited to talk to you today. Um, Mara and I were just talking about how it's unbelievable to think that it's been 10 years since Guiding Light went off the air. It's um, it's really just crazy because um, um, when the show got canceled shortly after that, I think it was Bruce Barry, our director, um, said it was just really important for us guys to stay in touch with each other. And so for the last, I don't know, eight, eight years, um, we've been getting together in the city once every three or four months at this, um, Italian restaurant. And, uh, the list includes, uh, Peter Simon, Jerry Vadorn, Jay Hammer, Locke Wallace, our amazing, um, stage director, um, Myself and who else would be there? Uh, Justin Dees. And Robert so, Newman too, right? Robert Newman, yeah. So, and then we, we, we sit and we break bread for about a couple hours and we, we reconnect, which is really, you know, important. And it's just been amazing. But still, August 2009 seems like, in many ways, it just seems like yesterday. Oh, I bet. You know. Right. We were we were talking about our favorite Guiding Light memories, and they really, even as viewers and from working here, it feels like yesterday. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so, Michael, yeah. when I interviewed you recently, you told me your casting story, which <laughs> I have not been able to stop thinking about. I think it's so wonderful. Will you indulge me for the sake of sure. our listeners and tell it again? Yeah. You, you talk about how I originally got cast yep. as Rick Bauer. Okay. So, anyway, I'm working on um, The Price is Right as a CBS usher in um, – television city in, in Los Angeles. And I was working on shows like, um, God, man, this is really dating myself. Cause it was 1983. It was, um, are you ready for this? Three's company, uh-huh. three's company, um, um, price is right. Match game. Um, the spinoff for all in the family, which I can't remember what it was, but anyway, nonetheless, I heard about the opportunity. Um, that came by Betty Ray was there casting um, five actresses for the part of Mindy and five for the part of uh, Beth. And um, I got my red jacket off and I put my street clothes on and I marched myself in there and introduced myself to Betty and Betty Ray goes, I'm sorry, we really don't, we're not casting any fellas today. And there there must be some mistake because there was a mistake. There was no, I, I never got an audition. I just, went in there and introduced myself to Betty and I was literally turning around going out the door and Betty goes, um, wait a second. Um, do you, do you got any plans tomorrow? And I said, no. She goes, well, we need a, a guy to screen test with these uh, women. And if you're not doing anything, um, you know, would you be interested in doing that? And I said, absolutely. So the next day I do the screen test Mind you, with nothing on the line, it was just me having fun with 10 gorgeous women, <laughs> one of one of which was Judy Evans for Beth, and the other one was Krista Tesro for Mindy. And um, I remember specifically both their auditions and thinking how wonderful they were. In fact, picking both of them, thinking, well, I think that they're going to, you know, they're going to get it. So wow. two days later, <clears throat> I come back from, I was going to Cal State Fullerton in Anaheim at the time, Fullerton rather, and I walk in the door and there's my mother watching Guiding Light. And I'm thinking, and I was not a soap opera dude at the time. So I go to my mother, go, mother, what are you, what are you watching this crap? (laughs) You know, this is just nonsense. You know, she goes, Michael, not please. I said, mother, it's a soap opera. It's all BS. And she goes, Michael, not now, please. Philip's got gonorrhea. And, and I just am so worried about him. And, and I, I, I pick up the phone and lo and behold, it's my agent from California. Uh, and she said, Michael, you're not going to believe this, but CBS just saw your screen test with these ladies and they're firing the Rick Bauer and they want you to replace him and they want you there on Friday. Wow. And I get off the phone and I go, mother, she goes, did you hear what I said? Philip might have gonorrhea. <laughs> and I have just don't. I said, mother, I'm going to be on your show. I'm being, I'm playing that character. In fact, Phil McGregor, who played Rick Bauer at the time, was on with Grant Alexander at that moment. That's and, crazy. And, and she turned around and she goes, oh my God. She actually said this, my water broke when you were born, when I was listening on the radio, blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, it was crazy. So <laughs> that was me. Her, yeah, that was on a Wednesday, and then I was on an airplane, and I was in New York on Friday, and that's how I got. That's how it happened for me. I literally was walking away when Betty Ray said to me, uh, "Hold on a second. So definitely, uh, you know, fate played a hand there, and uh, I flew back to New York on Friday, and I was doodling orderly type of things, changing somebody's bedpan. I don't know who it was, <laughs> and I swear to God. On Monday, I was reading the script on Saturday. We used to get our scripts on Saturday. I was reading the script on Saturday, and all of a sudden, I'm I'm friggin' doing brain surgery, and I'm thinking, <laughs> what happened between Friday? I'm changing bedpans, and I'm 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 doing brain surgery on Monday, and I call Bobby, um, our our line producer, and I go, Bobby, what the what's going on here? I'm a friggin' orderly and I'm doing brain surgery. And he goes, Michael, yesterday's yesterday, today's today. Don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Just do it. So, friggin', I did, I did brain surgery with somebody, and that was my first, uh, my first victim, uh, one of forty, one of forty, one of forty-four. I might add, because I think I killed forty-four. Uh, legend has that I killed forty-four patients. So. Oh, only forty-four. Yeah. That's not bad. That's not bad. It's good now. That's two a year. 
Oh. However long I was on the show. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so off to the races I went, I, you know, was, uh, you know, the doctor along with Ed and, you know, there was always a mal- medical malpractice suit going up against us. <laughs> <laughs> so we're always getting sued by somebody. <laughs> and then I'd go in front of the board and then, they, oh, it's okay, Rick. You know, you just made a mistake. You just left an instrument in, in your kidney. It's all right. Shake it off. It's okay, Rick. You know, just like real life, you know? Oh, my uh, God. What's that? I said O-Cedars. O-Cedars. And then when when budget cuts were were happening and, you know, things uh, – uh, do you remember the Bauer Barbecue when there was literally no barbecue? There was, <laughs> it was raining outside and we couldn't get outside and we just had a bunch of burgers on the – uh, on the counter and, and, and they couldn't afford the propane gas and the barbecue and, <laughs> and all of that. And I'm going, Oh my God, this is just, this is going off the rails. Um, so anyway, I was going to, I was going to make a point about the budgets being cut, but I totally Did people forgot. come to say level with me, Michael, are you killing me? <laughs> oh, Oh God. Yeah. So when we're going through, when we're going through contract negotiations, they knew I was Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> I'll never, I'll never forget Zimmer coming in and she was going through her thing. And then all of a sudden she, you know, you know, she has this little tumor on the side of the neck, the size of a baseball. And, uh, she comes to see me and then I think she signed the next day. <laughs> because that's, I swear that's to God. That's not going to end well. <laughs> they, they really did this when people were, when negotiations and usually it was the big stars, you know, not the, the mid-level uh, people, but the big stars, if there was some pushback, lo and behold, on Monday, guess who they saw? Dr. Rick. And, and then on a Tuesday, their contract was signed. Was, somebody from management whispered in my ear about that, that they purposely had me uh, you know, see somebody. Well, they're all like, no. you know, he started changing bedpans. And like two days later, yeah. he was a surgeon. So don't expect hey, a lot. I, I don't know how much I can say. I won't mention any names here, but since we're talking, we're talking out of school here. There was an, a certain actor who remained nameless. Um, now, when you did start in 1983, I mean, it was really yeah. such a magical year for the show. Oh. You know, the Rick, Beth, Mindy, Phillip, Four Musketeers story kicked off. Kim Zimmer mm-hmm. began her run as Riva. Yep. Like, so what are your memories of that amazing Four Musketeers story and working with Grant and Krista and Judy? I think people live their whole life career-wise. I mean, outside of the birth of my children, um, those three years from 83 to 85, 86 were the most magical years in my life. I mean, here I am, you know, a complete newbie, and I just drop into this wonderful show with these amazing actors, Larry Gates, Beverly McKenzie, Bill O'Rourke, the list goes on and on, of these amazing actors who were these, these mentors and leaders and led by example, and they were old school Hollywood, by the book, be professional types. And lo and behold, we get this amazing story from Pam Long with the three, with the four of us. And, um, it was exquisitely beautiful and gentle and sweet and funny, romantic. It was the best thing I've ever been a part of. And then, you know, on top of that, um, you know, I, I, I got a little crush on Krista Tesro. Oh, you know, just the, and who wouldn't, you know? And, and then I think what we did, we, we sort of worked through that too. Hey, let's be, let's be good buddies. And I think that that friendship between Krista and I, and with Grant and I, and then with Judy, the four of us, it really, it really showed. And I think the audience really got attached to it. And then of course, the side note to all this is that ironically, Grant, who's actually, I think a year or two younger than me, I kind of looked at him as, as sort of my big brother. When I started the show, I think he had a lot of, he was done a lot of modeling. He's, he had some work behind him and, and, um, and, you know, Grant just sort of took me under his wing and we became like brothers, best friends. And, and I think the audience, the, the specifically the female audience, really appreciated that friendship between these two guys. And um, 
they didn't care what woman we were sleeping with. If I was sleeping with Harley or he was sleeping with Abigail, it didn't matter. At the end of the day, the, the audience just wanted Philip and Rick to be friends. So it was just, I, don't, I just, it was just amazing. I mean, it was like the perfect storm of, of perfect, of good writing, um, the right actors. And we just, we wrote it. We wrote it for two and a half, three years. And then like all good stories, you know, or all good writing, it sort of fizzled out. And, but, uh, it set this, it set the table, I think for, um, what got in my does, I think better than anybody else is do real character driven, authentic Americana type stories. And, uh, it was great. Indeed. So yeah. um, Rick was, of course, a Bauer. Um, mm-hmm. And you actually overlapped in your early years on uh, on the show with Sharita Bauer, who played I did. Uh, uh, Bert, the matriarch of the family. She yep. had, had been part of the show, as you know, since the radio days. It's so amazing. Oh, it's crazy. What are your memories of her? Well, you know, I'm an Irish guy, so I love stories, and the story is like one of my favorites. I um, it was early on. I remember being very nervous and not not feeling quite comfortable. Um, and there was the Quint and Nola wedding that we shot in Pennsylvania somewhere, and I had not met Shreed at this point, and there was this old church. Um, that was out in this countryside that we were using uh, for the shoot. And Sharita was sitting on a one of the pews in this church, and she had a newspaper in her hand. And I kind of looked around, and she turned her head around. And she saw me, and she goes, hey, come here. Come over here. And I nervously kind of walked over her because she's this iconic figure. And I, and I sat down next to her, and she said, Michael O'Leary, um, I am going to keep an eye on you. I'm going to protect you from here on out. You're my grandson. And I want you to feel that way. And if there's anything that you need, you come to me, dear, because I'll, I'll take care of you. And so I just adored Sharita. And um, she wasn't somebody, you know, who was catty chatty, but she was somebody who was loyal um and um and i missed her i remember her funeral i remember her passing i remember that whole story and uh, the way the show beautifully weaved in reality with what you know many of our actors you know walk through and so it was great i loved it and there's i have some really i've got three or four pictures of sharita um back in my home that i cherish and hold on to that's so sweet um, yeah. Well, Mar and I were also talking about Peter Simon and how much of a fan we are of his. Um, tell us about working with Peter and your relationship with him. Peter is cantankerous and funny and irreverent and self-effacing and vulnerable and talented. And <clears throat> and Peter, and again, Peter always, to, to this day, he always avails himself. Um, and he's... I'm going to use this word. I don't use this word very often, but he's so present. So when you're sitting with Peter Simon, you know, you, he, you're, you're 150% he's with you. There's nobody else around. And so I, again, it's, it's sort of like proxy and I'm not probably the first actor that said this, but you know, when you're in your soap opera family, they sort of, Peter was my, my dad in many ways. Um, Sharita was my grandmother, uh, Ellen Dolan. And then, Ellen Parker felt like, even though there was probably 10 or 12 years separating us, um, felt like my mother. Um, so you really had this sense of family and you know what? It, it's really interesting. I think there, every actor from Jerry Vadorn, they all led by example. And for Grant and I, I remember Grant and I looking at each other one time and said, you know, Mikey, what, one, one day we're going to be Jerry and we're going to be Peter and we're going to have to lead by example too. So that was part of the, the great tradition. And, and Peter was, 
uh, you know, I like taking his toupee and hiding it. And, you know, uh, I, got, I got a, I got a great funny Peter Simon story. Do you got a second for this? Yeah. Can I, Hit okay. us. So, you know, I, I, I have a reputation for being a bit of a practical joker. And we've heard <laughs> in the old studio, there was no air conditioning, these big, huge fans in the hallway. And it was just so awful. And, um, and, uh, one afternoon, Peter got in a screaming match with the studio supervisor about, you know, there was no air. <laughs> I'm laughing at this already. <laughs> that there, was no, there was no air in the building. And uh, he started screaming at this guy. I don't know. I think, I think his name was Rich. Yeah, yeah you, you know, you guys, you got so much money. We want some, we want some air. It's, it's awful. And he goes, uh, yeah, drop dead, Simon. Now you drop dead. <laughs> so... So later that afternoon, I got this beautiful bouquet of flowers from some fan. And so I marched myself to the flower shop, got a different uh, uh, greeting card, and I put on the greeting card, um, Dear Peter, I'm sorry about the misunderstanding about the air conditioning. Please, I please accept my apologies. So... The flowers were there the next day. Peter, I wasn't there. I wasn't working that day. So Peter comes in. He sees the flowers. Now he feels like a bit of a, a buffoon. And he walks into this guy's office, not knowing, of course, that the guy never sent the flowers and had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so Peter walks in the office and the guy jumps from his desk, right? And he grabs, he grabs uh, I don't know, some scissors in his hand or something. And Peter goes, no, no, no. Hey, 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 hey. Take it easy. Take it easy. Everything's cool, man. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you, I, um, sorry, sorry about the misunderstanding about the air conditioning. Thanks for the flowers. <laughs> Thanks for the flowers. And then, <laughs> and apparently the guy just stared at him, didn't say anything. <laughs> and Peter, Peter, Peter walked out of the room <laughs> and later on the next day I'm in the urinal. And the, the guy's studio father said to some other tech guy, he goes, yeah, Simon, he's a weirdo, man. He says, I sent him some flowers. <laughs> guy's a wacko. He's a wacko. So uh, anyway, I'm cracking myself up on that one. <laughs> and, you, and did they ever find out? or? Well, I told Peter it was me. And oh. <laughs> so. oh, my God. That's amazing. So, yeah. <clears throat> Um, now, you had come and gone from the show a few times and then settled yes. back into it in the mid-90s. Um, yes. So what do you remember just about sort of leaving and coming back? And did it feel different? Or were you, you know, did you have a new chapter for Rick? Did you consider it? Um, boy, it was a new chapter um, definitely um, in the sense that, you know, I, I was, you know, uh, married. I had two children. And, um, and I was settling into, you know, being a working actor and, and being back with, um, the people that I really like being with. Um, and so it was, you know, it was like coming back home, you know, to use the phrase, um, as far as, as far as the storyline, um, I don't, I don't recollect anything that jumps out at me other than, you know, I had this, uh, uh, I started off working with the incredibly talented Cynthia Watros and um, Jill brought me back and we did this um, scene where uh, Annie and Rick were, were married and, and um, that, that whole story is, you know, what brought me back to the show. And, and then um, Cynthia moved on, I think did a story with Robert and um, Kim. So yeah, that's, that's, that's the story that brought me back. And, uh, in the wake of his, you know, Annie heartbreak, uh, Rick had a one night stand with Blake and she ended up carrying twins. Yes. And the story right for many years was that Rick was the father of one of the boys and Ross was the th father of the other. Doesn't get much soapier than that. Um, what stands to you out, out to you about that story and working with Liz Kiefer and uh, Jerry Verdorn? Well, first of all, rumor has it, legend has it, that that was... Uh they got somebody, one of the writers got that from an actual news article, a newspaper article, um, that an interracial relationship happened between two different people and that this was actually a true story. So that's the first thing I heard that right before we even did that story. Now that story to me was the funnest thing I've ever done. It's just, just out of pure, like laughing every day and having a good time and working with Liz, 
And um, um, we laughed every single day. And, and the thing that, and Jerry, I thought, had the hardest job because he had to play, he had to be the cuckold basically for however long we did the story. And just like he'd just not know that I'm sleeping with his wife. Um, and you know, in some ways I look back at that, that was a turning point for me because up to that point, Rick was just the good boy. And now I got a chance to be the bad boy. Um, and I remember, uh, my grandmother, God rest her soul would say to me, I remember cause I was starting to get hate mail from that storyline and I was kind of bummed about it. You know, how dare you? Cause you know, uh, uh, Blake and Ross were sanctuary, you know, that was, you can't, that was like the solid marriage on the show apparently. And I was getting all this hate mail. And my grandmother says to me, I remember, um, you know, she watched the show every day. And, and, she, and, I, and I said, Grandma, I'm just getting this mail. It's just people saying this nasty stuff. And she said, well, what are you supposed to do? Blake got you all liquored up on that tequila. <laughs> right? You're just being a man. You, you know, it was her fault. She got you all liquored up. And, uh, and then she did. If you remember, she got me drunk and... And then, uh, and then the things deed happen. Happened. Yeah, things happen. Now, the question to everybody that will be listening to this podcast is: What happened to the twins? Do you remember? Well, they both turned out to be Rosses eventually. I don't right, Kevin and well, uh, the other yeah, one. Yeah, and I and I think that yes, and then I think they Rick was having trouble with. I mean, that kind of was an impotent shot at Rick. And everybody made fun of me at that point because, oh, I guess you're shooting blanks. Uh, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Well, turnabout yeah. is fair play, Michael, after the uh, story you told us earlier about the. That's uh, true. Yeah, that's that's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, and I got to, uh, to to work with Jerry again on uh, on Venice. That was a lot of fun. Mm hmm. Um, so also in the late 90s, Rick married mm -hmm. Abigail, played by Amy Eklund. Um, so keeping it family friendly here, Michael, I know you have some fun <laughs> memories of learning sign language for that story. Yeah, I can't, I can't tell your wonderful audience that story, even though it's the funniest <laughs> thing. Because I think you've, you've both heard the story, right? So I, I won't tell it. Don't worry, Stephanie. I won't <laughs> tell the story. But needless to say, we had a crash course, and I'll leave out the other details. We had a crash course in sign language. We had two weeks to learn it, and uh, Amy Eklund, who was deaf in real life, um, did not know sign language. And I guess um, I got educated this in the deaf community. There are those who advocate for sign language and then those who advocate for reading lips. Um, and Amy was one of those people who never learned sign language. So we both learned it together. We had two weeks to learn it. And, um, let me tell you something, we, um, signed the wrong things quite often and, <laughs> and things that were rather, <laughs> were, were rather salacious by accident <laughs> and, and, um, I mean, really salacious and the deaf community did not like the fact that I was, I was, uh, bastardizing the sign language. Um, but working with Amy was just fantastic i think amy was one of the best actresses i've ever worked with and uh and that was incredible and then we got a chance to actually do when uh, amy eklund in real life got a cochlear implant and i think this was in the the beginning stages of the technology and to this day she can hear now which is really quite remarkable That's are you still in touch with her i am yes <gasps> michael yeah. I, we're gonna have to talk after because rebecca buttig challenged me to find her she was oh. like, I lost touch oh. with her at some point, but I loved her so I don't much. Know. I talked to Rebecca probably, I don't know, two months ago. And and you didn't uh, tell her that you knew Amy? Well, I did. I, and she brought, you know what? I think she may have asked me for the number. I can't believe I didn't get it to her, but I'll, uh, I'll call. I have her phone number. I'll, I'll call her. All right. And, all right. It's yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, in the, in the late nineties, sort of like around this same era, the show was taking sort of like a sci-fi turn, um, mm -hmm. and, and the clone story happened and then the time travel story happened. Uh, I'm wondering if you remember what you as like, a, a member of the Bauer family, the, the core of Springfield felt about this at the time, you know, was it something that you as an actor had an opinion about this like sudden shift? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I think, in my opinion, this is, and this is what, 1999, something like that? 1998? Uh, 19 it was 98 was the um, clone and yeah. then 2001 right. was the time travel. So, so it was that time. 
I think this was about the time, um, and I, I'm not comparing this to the OJ trial, but I think the OJ trial and this crazy storyline was indicative of the fact that they were really, really scared that we're losing our audience. And I think that our numbers really started to drop off. Uh, Court TV became um, preeminent, capable, which was laughed at, now became a real player. And, uh, and now also we start doing these crazy storylines because I think we were just afraid that if we weren't the over the top spectacular crazy that people were going to tune us out. And, um, so I think there was, you know what, I, I, I think that we we're, there's, there's a point where we're all looking at each other and, and thinking, well, maybe this is the beginning of the end of, of soap operas, um, because our show kept getting interrupted by the trial and then we're doing these crazy things and, um, and some of it worked and some of it didn't, but I think, you know, from my perspective, it got, it got away from what we did best. And, um, I don't know that that's, you know, I, I think that good storytelling, simple, good storytelling is the best. I mean, I remember one story in particular with Frank Beatty who played the cross dresser, um, and they really spent time with it, and it was really good. And you know what? That was kind of – that was uh, – I was told by a CBS executive that that was when we actually bumped up quite a bit, and people were really, like, digging on that story. Um, Frank Beatty just did a spectacular job on it. I was so good. But, but he was so good. And he went and he studied and, and uh, it was freaky and weird and people start disappearing and, and it was just done very well. Um, I don't know what Kim felt about it, but I kind of felt like it was, we started kind of getting away from what we did well, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and in a similar vein, uh, not to be critical, but uh, when the show at the <laughs> end of its run, you know, the it changed dramatically by filming in Peapack, New Jersey. Um, yeah. You know, the production model was completely different, not really soap-like right. at all at that point. Um, you know, what was that right. like for all of you in the cast to be working like that? Well, you knew that the wheels were coming off the car, and you just didn't know how long the show was going to last. And um, um, there was – I remember one point um, Ellen came in and said, everybody do a salary cut of 15 or 20 percent, and then – and then we had the permanent sets and so forth. And, and um, to Ellen's credit, um, I think she did everything she could to try to keep the, the show on the air. Um, I think if she had a little bit more time, um, that we may have survived. But we, we didn't – the model wasn't perfect. The sound wasn't good. And, and it just – and the stories were – I don't know. I think CBS has kind of checked out. <laughs> and we were kind of – it felt like we were improving every day. And um, – I just felt like the wheels were coming off. And now I loved going out to PPAC. I loved it because it was close to where I was at the time. Um, I love not having to commute into the city and, you know, it was great. I mean, I really loved shooting out there. I wish we kind of got, we got the model uh, the quicker, um, but it was too late for us, you know? So the, sh- the show had been in, in danger of cancellation for a while, but when it actually yeah. happened, it still felt like a shock to all of us, I think. Um, yeah. How did you get the word, and can you describe what it, it felt like to be absorbing that news? <clears throat> well, there was the, the tease with, I think it was People Magazine did a big uh, issue about the show, and we were on the back page. And then... You know, you know, we were on these year contracts and maybe every six months, you know, it was it used to be with CBS, you get a three year renewal. And then from 2000, from ironically, I think 1999, 2000, we were on a one year renewal. And um, that's why I go back to that uh, previous uh, subject matter about these crazy stories. I, I think everybody was scared. And then, you know, somehow we limped along for the next eight or nine years. But, um, I just think that everyone was, you know, uh, actually thinking that we somehow got on the other side because we had all this PR. We went down to Florida um, to do a remote. And I'm thinking, well, why would they spend all this money doing a remote? Why would we be going down to Florida to Orlando? And why would they be doing this thing in life, uh, a People magazine? You know, and I actually, ironically, started to think that we, we, 
we're like turning a corner of some sort, even though I think the ratings were like 2.1 or 2.2 at the time, 2.3 maybe. So I was, um, the day the call came, ironically, as you know, was April 1st of uh, 2009, 2009, yeah, 2009. And I was walking into Chase Bank and I was, um, I was heading with my family to um, put to Kanta and I was going to Chase Bank to get traveler's checks for my trip. And the, the phone rang and I'm right before I got into the bank and it was Ellen and there was nothing. I don't, I don't know why that when she called me and she's never called me before, why it didn't register. And she called, she goes, Michael, it's Ellen. I said, Oh, Hey, Ellen, what's up? She goes, well, I just got out of, um, uh, meeting with CBS. And then all of a sudden, like a bad movie, her voice started, uh, getting choppy. Like we got a bad connection. She goes, and we CBS i said we renewed <laughs> renewed <laughs> i thought i heard renewed and i bounce into the bank the signal drops i bounce in the bank get my travelers checks i walk out she calls me back and she says we just got canceled today michael and i just wanted you to find out from me and i was standing there and I was on the way to picking up my daughters from school. So I was like, wow. So I went back, um, picked up my kids. And um, my former spouse and I, we, we go out to Putacanta. And I had not spoken to my daughters about it. I left my phone on the bed and my daughter picked it up and she wrote, and I didn't know we got even reception all the way in the, you know, uh, out in the Bahamas. And, um, she started crying hysterically. She goes, daddy, oh no, you lost your job. People are saying they're so sorry, daddy. Oh my God. And she started crying. And, um, and I said, honey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then we get to the beach and there are all these, these boys from, other countries hitting on her and then life was good for her again, you know? <laughs> so, you know, but it was a shock. It was definitely a shock. Um, I was doing real estate at the time, um, because it was a part of me that felt that this was, we were going to get the call any day, but even though I had this other job, um, you know, it was very sad, um, that, this place I went to wasn't just a job. It was my family. And, uh, every day I'd go in, uh, I'd see my best friend, Grant. We shared a dressing room forever. We'd laugh. We would have a good time. And, um, and we were grateful. That's the other part. We were grateful that we had this great job. Um, and we had these great friends and all of us knew that we we're going, that wasn't going to last, but even, even having, you know, be, you know, when you prepare for it, um, I think if anybody saw the YouTube video of our last day and you can see the emotions and everything, um, people weren't ready to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Neither was the audience, of course. Sure. Um, so how would you describe those last few days on set or of shooting? Um, the first thing that comes to my mind when you mentioned that was, um, Grant got really quiet, and um, I remember we we're doing this basketball sequence, and um, we were playing basketball against these other two guys, and and uh, and Jill Lurie knows so much. I love basketball, so she gave Grant and I this scene out in the park, and Grant was sitting there, and he goes, um, he goes, Mikey, you know this life will never be the same. I mean, it's just. Um, you know, we just got to remember this moment. And he was really like quiet and, and, um, serious. And, and I guess, I guess I was in total denial because I, it didn't, it didn't hit me, you know, that I, I was, I was in a place where it just, I just wasn't where he was. And when I shot my last scene and then Ellen, um, everybody who did their last scene goes, and, uh, let's give a big, big hand to, you know, Tina Sloan and 
Jerry Bedorn. And, and then he goes, and now he's and, and getting big hand for Michael O'Leary. And I go, what? That's it? That's my last scene? <laughs> and it was. It was my last scene I shot in a, a gazebo with, um, I think it was with uh, Nancy St. Alban. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was um, it was sad. Um, but at the same time, there was a sense of acceptance that, look, I had this job since 1983 and it's 2009. How many people can say they were on a job, you know, a great paying gig on a, on a, in, in, in the entertainment industry that lasts that long. True. Um, so I was very grateful for it, you know, and still am. I mean, that, 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 that show shaped my whole life. It gave me everything that I have now. Um, gave me the relationships that I have now, and you know, I, I spoke about Betty Ray earlier, but I can, I can tell you, everybody. A lot of times, we don't, we don't get, we don't do a shout out for the people behind the scenes. You know, the people who are the stage managers and the production assistants, and you know, uh, they were all just really just wonderful. Oh, I miss yeah. it. I miss it, Michael. I know. I know. <laughs> so, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. Um, and you know, I was going to segue here to, um, what we've all done in different, uh, ways. Um, I'm speaking of Crystal, what Crystal's doing with her show, Venice, and it's not, you know, it's not guiding light. It's something else, but to, to Crystal's credit, um, you know, she's brought back a lot of people from the show, particularly this last season, and brought everybody together again. Yeah, it was definitely really- fun when you put that photo up of you guys. Like, yeah. it just felt very familiar Absolutely. and right. Yeah. And um, ironically, you know, the only time I worked with Jerry to to really any extent, this is kind of odd, but it was during that scene with, with, uh, with Liz Kiefer. So Jerry was always there. was always a presence. We kind of had peripheral things, but that that one particular segment of story was the most I ever worked with Jerry. Um, so it was really a real treat when Jerry and I got a chance to play this uh, the, these characters. For I think we're on for three shows. I don't think I don't know if they've run yet. Um, I got a chance to get all tattooed up, and we play these two hicks out in Alabama, and we're um, you know we're housekeepers for this haunted house, and we're we're bad housekeepers. We don't, we don't fix anything <laughs> and, and the house is haunted. So Crystal said, Hey, go just have fun with it. And it was just a great, it brought back a lot of memories, how, how the guiding light set felt actually. So it was great. I can't wait to see that. Well, Michael, before we let you go, is there mm-hmm. um, anything you would like to say to the GL fans who might be listening that we, that we certainly still hear from who still miss the show and cherish really all of the memories that the show provided them uh, over the years. Do you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, our wonderful senior audience out there who I have a special soft place in my heart for um, our elders and our seniors who, you know, watch the show. And if I had a nickel for every time some, some woman would say, you know, my mother, you know, she watched the show and I watched the show. And, um, and so, there's a tradition with our show and the tradition is, is the audience that created it because without them, we wouldn't have had the chance to have these great jobs for all these years. So, um, I would say to our GL audience that, um, we're all doing different things. You'll see us and appear in different things. And I've got this great play, um, that I'm very excited about that I've worked with, um, director Larry Moss, who's worked with Leonardo DiCaprio and Helen Hunt and Hilary Swank, and he's he's championing my play. I've worked with him for the last, I don't know, two years developing it. We're very close to sending it out there. We've got some great people who are interested. So oh, that's great. Um, yeah, so we we hope to bring it to New York, and I'll definitely you know I'll definitely let you guys know first, so you can let everybody else know. But Wonderful. Long, and sh- long and short is thank you for thank you for everything. Thanks for the memories and thank you for all the, the good years of, of work and getting a chance to work with these great people. Well, thank you for joining us today. It was so great to take a walk down memory lane and think about Springfield again. 
Yeah, I think it was pretty clean when I did, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Nicely done. Stephanie? Okay. For what right. it could have been, nicely done. <laughs> <laughs> I know. If we'd, if we'd been all off the record, we'd, we'd, we'd yeah. be talking for another six hours. Michael, oh, oh, the other part, before we get off, I'm yeah. engaged to be married. Oh, to, Mazel um, Tov. Yes, thank you very much. Um, it's, uh, her name is Christina, and uh, I've moved down to the shore. She's got two wonderful um, kids, and so we haven't set a date yet, but I just also wanted to share that good news, too. Well, that's great news. That is absolutely yeah. awesome. I have to tell you, I, when I saw Cynthia Watros uh, at General Hospital the last time I was there, I shared that with her, and she was so happy to hear that. Oh, well, I got to tell you, Cynthia, I'll just end with this. Cynthia is one of the most mesmerizing, uh, uh, talented actresses I've ever seen, ever worked with, ever. And for her, you know, I was going through a difficult time, you know, um, uh, several years ago. And when I was working on this play and, and thank God for Facebook, I was able to contact Cynthia and because um, I didn't have her phone number and. She read my play and she said yes. And she flew out from Los Angeles and she did it. And I thought, man, this is this is a thing. I'll just say the other thing, the last thing I'll say, I know I'm, I'm going on a bit, but this is the thing that's so remarkable about our show is that, you know, I ask Beth Chamberlain and Tina Sloan and Grant Alexander to do my one-act play at the Manhattan Rep. Couldn't pay them anything. It was just a one-act competition. And they said yes. They came in the city. They rehearsed three or four times. We put it up. And this, this is what, you know, this is what's so special about what we have here on GL is, you know, these, these are, these are people that will be friends for a lifetime, you know? And so I'll end it with that. Well, that is amazing. And it just yeah. shows how close you all were and how, you know, many incredible bonds you created over the years oh, there. Definitely. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to hearing what you're up to next, and keep in touch. Thank you for the opportunity. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Michael O'Leary for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.